Don't look at your phone while you're driving. Please put it away. Son, could you please put your phone away while we're at the table? Dad, why are you always on my case? All the time. Alec, could you please put your phone away just while we're at the table? We want to hear about how your day is going. How's, how's your friends? How's school? School's going well. The guys are good too. Actually, I was hoping I could go over and see them after dinner. Would, would that be alright? Of course. Just make sure that you clean up and do your dishes before then. Dad, I'm so sorry. I, I promise, I only looked at my phone for a couple hey, of seconds. Hey, hey, it's okay. I'm just glad you're safe. That's what matters most. For the time being, you can borrow mom's car if you need to, and as far as your car's concerned, we'll fix it together. I gotta say, I'm a little thankful you wrecked this car. Finally give me a chance to break out some of the dad jokes I've been working on. Try and get a laugh out of you. Is that so? Definitely. You haven't really seemed to be a very big fan of me lately. Are you, are you kidding? I only come off as frustrated and upset because of how you treat me. 
Wait, what What do you even mean by that? You're always on my case about everything. I can never live up to your standards. I can never do anything right. I can't believe this. Where's, where's Dad? He went to get things for the car. Why? I don't want to be around him right now. I understand what you feel, Alec, but I don't think your father's intent was to make you feel that way. Yeah, how so? Why make that comment? Because it's true. I mean, you've always been really critical of him. Yeah, that's because he gives me unrealistic expectations that I can never live up to. I'm never good enough in his eyes. Alec, that's... I see where you are, and I understand how you feel. But your father doesn't feel that way. He loves you. He cares about you. Your relationship with him has always been rocky because you haven't given yourself the opportunity to understand him. You haven't given yourself the opportunity to understand how much he loves you and he cares about you. Hey, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go back out there. You're gonna apologize for the way you reacted, and then you guys are gonna finish that car, okay? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Dad, I... It's okay. I understand. Let's just finish the car. Yeah, it's definitely better, that's for sure. Hey, could I see some friends after dinner tonight? Sure, just drive safe and don't look at your phone. <laughs> what he said. <laughs> no problem. How are you feeling? 
a little sore. <laughs> My forearm hurts pretty bad. At least you're okay. How did this happen? I was reaching for my phone. I know I shouldn't have. I, I tried not to, Alan, but I got distracted. that's the second time that phone has caused an accident. Didn't you learn anything from the last time? Look, we all make mistakes, but some mistakes have greater consequences than others. Not only did you total your car and someone else's, but you could have been seriously injured in the process. It's time you learned that our actions and our lives they matter. You have a purpose in this life, and that comes with some real responsibilities. This accident is going to have some serious consequences for you, and your mom and I are more than willing to help you get through those together, but you have got to examine yourself and learn how to become better because of it. Listen, I need to go talk to the nurse for a second, but I'll be back. I'm glad you're okay. If you have your Bibles, we're going to finish out our study of Ezra. Today we're going to look at Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. And as you sense from the video, things don't turn out quite like we might want them to, but God is faithful and God is gracious in all of that. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezra 9. We're going to talk first about the problem that we see, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2 in Ezra chapter 9. It says this, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. It just amazes me when you read through the story of Ezra that you see this sin, this intermarrying with these foreign wives. And not just that, but bringing in their gods and, and assimilating their belief systems with God's belief system. It, it amazes me that they would yet fall again into this sin the very sin that led them to exile, the very sin that cost them slavery, the very sin that hurt their hearts and the heart of God was the same sin that they quickly found themselves caught up again. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, this is what God commanded them when they entered the promised land. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. 
for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Why, God? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you read that and you see God has chosen this nation, not because they were deserving, not because they merited God's grace, but because of his love. He chose them out of all the nations. And he promised to go before them and he promised to fight for them. And he promised to empower them. He promised to lead them. He promised all of these things and all that God asked in return was trust and faith and obedience. Just trust me. Just live by my command. And the one thing that God called them not to do is the very thing that they did that led them into exile for 70 years. In the midst of all of that, God draws a remnant out and he brings them back and he blesses them and he doesn't forget them. And he doesn't abandon his promise. And he draws them back and in a short matter of a few years, they find themselves right back into the same sin that costs them dearly. And you read Ezra and you read through the Old Testament these stories of the people of God living in rebellion to God and the penalty for their sin, and we're left scratching our heads. And we ask the question, what is wrong with you? Why do you not get it? And then we look in the mirror and we realize that we're not much different than they are that that besetting sin that costs us so dearly, we often find ourselves running back to that and running away from God. And God seated on his throne in heaven with such grace and love and mercy for us, heart is broken that we don't choose to trust him and we don't choose to obey him, but we run back to that that has hurt us so dearly. And that's what was happening in the life of these people. They had married these foreign wives, and it wasn't so much that they married these foreign wives, it was that they had accepted their gods and their religion. Like what one commentator said, this was not a blanket condemnation of marriage to any particular ethnic group or even to all foreigners. For elsewhere, there's no condemnation of the marriage of several important figures, Abraham, Moses, Boaz, to foreigners. Look at this. Rather, God warned his people not to intermarry with those who worshiped foreign gods to protect them from syncretism and apostasy. Don't marry them because when you do that, you're going to bring their gods and their religious beliefs, and you're going to try and mesh those with what I have given you. You're going to try and synchronize those together. And what's that, what, what that's going to cause you to do is to fall away from me. That's apostasy. And God, in his foreknowledge, knew 
that to guard against this, we must wipe them out. We must take them out. Don't bring them in, but they chose instead to do that. So yet again, we see God's solution for man's disobedience. And we see it first in Ezra's response. Look at verses 3 through 15. Here's Ezra. He's returned to the scene. He's excited that he's come back to the promised land. And this is what he says. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. He was broken. He was devastated. It's fascinating to me that Ezra's not guilty of this sin. But yet, because he's a part of God's chosen nation, he knows that he, as they, stand condemned before God because of their disobedience, and he's broken by it. Then in verse 4, he says, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out to the hand, my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Verse 9, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commit, commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure and with with the impurity of the people of the lands, with their abominations, they have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Look, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us 
so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. God, what a powerful prayer that Ezra prayed on behalf of the people. Did you catch what Ezra didn't do? He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't necessarily cast judgment. He didn't condemn the people. They already stood condemned. He simply fell on his face before the Father, and he prayed a humble, honest prayer for God to hear and for man to hear. I love what one commentator had to say. He said, there's no need for a sermon. For Ezra's prayer left his audience with two possible choices. They could either refuse to confess their sins, continue in their marriages with foreigners who did not worship Yahweh, and accept whatever judgment Yahweh might choose to pour out on them in the future. Or they could confess their sins, remove the impure foreign wives who worshiped other gods, ask for forgiveness, and pray for God's mercy and his grace. So how did they respond? They stood at a crossroads yet again. Here we are. Because of our sin, this is what we deserve. Yet because of his grace, this is what God offers. So what did they do? Look in your Bibles. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. What was their response? It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. Here's the spokesperson for the people. He says, we have broken faith with our God and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as he had said. So they took the oath. How did they respond? They responded to complete agreement. They said, we have broken faith. We have married foreign wives. We have lived and are living in disobedience, and we will do whatever, God, you desire for us to do. I think I, one thing that I think is very interesting about this, you remember if you rewind all the way back to the beginning of our study of, of uh, Ezra, you had all of these exiles living in a foreign land, and through the work of pagan kings, God was drawing them back. God was allowing them to come back to the promised land. But remember, only a remnant, only a small group, only about 50,000 chose to come back. And what's amazing about this passage, and we don't have time to read it, but if you go to the end of Ezra chapter 10, you see these listing of those that had actually broken the laws and married these foreign wives. 
What's fascinating as you study that is this, not everyone was guilty of the sin, but everyone stood condemned because they were a part of the whole. They were a part of a nation that God had separated to himself to be sanctified and set apart and holy so that when people surrounding them looked, they saw this, these are God's people and they are different. And because of that, Ezra knew, because, not, not because of his sin, but because of the sins of the people that they were condemned. And you look at the story of the Israelite people in the nation, and time and time again, they falter and they fail God. And God draws them to their knees in repentance through circumstances and situations, and there's restoration that takes place, and you think, surely they figured it out now. But the cycle just continues, and it keeps going. Sin and punishment, repentance and restoration. And that's us. And let me say to you, church family, your sin matters. What you do matters. When you choose to sin, even if it's in the privacy of your own home or your own mind, it matters to this family. When you harbor sin in your life, it impacts your witness and your ministry and our testimony. It matters. So church family, stop toying with sin. Stop messing with sin. And come to a father who loves you and died for you and offers you grace, mercy, and forgiveness and find redemption because it matters. And let me say this. If you don't care about yourself, but yet you're a part of this family, at least care about the others that you're impacting. So how did they respond? They responded in repentance and trust, trusting God and his plan from the beginning, trusting Ezra and his plan leading them forward from this point. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Those of you that are familiar with the book of Ezra have been waiting for this. You've been wondering, I wonder how Scott or I wonder how Aaron, how are they going to tackle this where God tells the people to divorce, divorce their foreign wives and to put them aside and to put aside their children with those foreign wives? How do we, how do we digest that? How do we deal with that? Well, I want you to listen very carefully, and I'm going to do my best to try and define for you what's taking place here. Remember the context. Here's this nation that has been chosen by God out of all these other nations, and his sole purpose is for them to glorify him through their holy living. So when you read this, and you scratch your head and you wonder what's going on because you know our God hates divorce. His word tells us that. But yet, in this particular circumstance, he's condoning divorce and the putting away of wives and children. What do you do with that? Well, listen to me. For us, as we read this, this passage of Scripture is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Let me say that again. 
This passage of Scripture for us is descriptive. It's descriptive of what was necessary at this place, at this time, for these people. It is not prescriptive for us today. Do not walk away from here today saying, well, God's word told me or Scott said, because I have a pagan spouse, I can divorce them. That is not what God's word is saying. That is not what I am saying. But what I am saying that in this particular circumstance and situation, that's what was necessary. That's what was necessary. And it was all about removing those foreign gods and worshiping Yahweh and worshiping, worshiping him alone. One commentator said this, although some commentators and readers object to what seems to them like an inappropriate discrimination against these foreign wives, the narrator is clear that this was the only option. And this isn't the only time. If you continue reading their story through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 27, takes an even harsher stance at those that have married foreign wives. I won't read it to you, but it does say that he confronted them and he cursed them and he beat some of them and he pulled out their hair and he made them take an oath to not continue this sin. Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11, he condemned any man that would come into the presence of God with a wife that was worshiping foreign gods or pagan gods. God takes sin seriously. Now listen, although this was the only response for God's people at this time and this place, it is not God's response for us. The last thing God desires for us in our marriages is divorce. Yes, God allows divorce. I get it. And listen to me. Hear me, please. I am not here to condemn anybody that's been divorced. I have family members that have been divorced. I have dear friends that have been divorced. But I know this. God's desire from the beginning of creation was for one man to marry one woman for one lifetime. That's God's desire. That's why he calls us the bride of Christ because it's a beautiful picture of commitment. Even in the midst of difficulties, if anyone should have ever divorced his bride, God the Father should be the one to do that. But yet throughout the history of mankind, God has offered grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that's what God desires from us. Look at what Jesus had to say about divorce in Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, listen, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 said this, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So according to Scripture, divorce should be the last resort. According to Scripture, you're freed from that covenant commitment if your wife has, or husband has committed adultery or if your unbelieving spouse has left you. But according to the Word of God, if you find yourself living in a home with an unbelieving spouse, if that spouse is willing to stay around, then according to the Word of God, you should stick it out. And you should stay with them because in doing that, you're living out even difficult, trying, hard times and places. You are living out what it means to be a follower of Christ. And they are watching you. And perhaps in the process of you living your Christianity out, even when they come against your Christianity, perhaps even in that, you might win them to Christ. I love what one commentator said. He said, in the Old Testament, mixed marriages, mixed meaning a child of God being married to a spouse who is not, often led the husband and children into pagan worship. While in the New Testament, mixed marriages often led to the conversion of the pagan spouse. Listen, in both cases, the key question hinged on what would preserve and promote the kingdom of God in this fallen world versus what would threaten it. I know this is a difficult subject. I know this is a touchy subject. So just hear me. Please hear me. To those that are here today that have been divorced and not of your choosing, please hear me. Let the love of God and His grace guide you and comfort you through your heartache. If you are here today and you are guilty of divorcing outside the biblical guidelines, hear me. Let God redeem. Confess your sin. Repent and trust God to lead you from this point forward. To those who are present who are married to an unbeliever, 
if possible, live at peace with them and live a life of godliness around them. For as I've already said, in so doing, you might win them to Christ. But never, hear me, never place yourself or your children in danger. And do not condone the sins of your unbelieving spouse. To those who are dating, let me remind you of Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that says, do not be unequally yoked together. Let me say this. I served as a student pastor for 13 years, and it always fascinated me when I would have a strong Christian young man or young woman that would come in and they would introduce to me their boyfriend or their girlfriend who was not a believer. And when I would talk to them about that, this term would come up. They would call it missionary dating. In other words, I'm going to date them, and during the process of dating them, I'm going to witness to them, and while we are dating and while I am witnessing, then they're going to be converted to Christ. Missionary dating. I'm going to use our dating relationship to lead them to Christ. That is not biblical. If that is you, that is not biblical. So what do you do? You, you love that person with the love of Christ. You don't date them, but you share the love of Christ with them. You befriend them, and you pray that they will come to Christ. And when they do come to Christ, and if God so leads, then you date them. But dating them to lead them to Christ is a dangerous place to be. One commentator said this, being equally yoked is not meant to inhibit our dating lives. Rather, it is a command designed for protection and honor. Being unequally yoked is more dangerous than you think, and waiting for someone with whom you share the same spiritual heritage is far more rewarding than many believe. God blessed me with a beautiful wife. We've been married for 28 years. But the thing that is most beautiful about my wife is not what's on the outside. It's not her personality. It's her love for our God. I have watched for 28 years my wife offer me grace, mercy, and forgiveness when I didn't deserve it. I watched my wife raise up with me three children that love and serve the Lord. And I now get to watch and enjoy with my wife my grandsons. And we get to instill within them a godly heritage as well. Am I grateful for the beauty? You bet. Am I grateful for her personality? That's right. But I am most grateful for her love for the Lord. That is what is most precious. So what is the conclusion? I titled the sermon today, Finished But Not, not Done. That is an oxymoron. How can you be finished, but you're not done? Well, that's what we see in the life of our study of the book of Ezra. Undoubtedly, we will finish the book today, but the story of the return of the exiles is not complete. Just keep on reading through the book of Nehemiah. Just keep on reading through the Old Testament. Keep on reading through the New Testament. Here's the beauty of it, church. If you're a child of God, it is finished. The work was finished on the cross. I don't stand condemned before God. When God sees me, he sees me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am good, but I am not 
glorified. I am not what God desires for me to be. I may be saved and I may be secure, but I am not yet where God desires for me to be. I'm still a work in progress. He's still chipping away. He's still standing off the rough edges. He's still working through his grace, mercy, and forgiveness in my life and in yours. But hear me, listen, and we'll end with this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 say this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are consequences to our sin. Just as we saw played out in the video, there are consequences. It doesn't cost me my eternal well-being. It doesn't cost me my home with the Father through all of eternity. But our sin cost us, and it cost us dearly. My prayer for you, God's desire for you, is that you live in obedience to the Father, that you trust him even when it doesn't make sense. You trust him. And I can imagine some of those that were told to divorce their wives and rid themselves of them and their children. That probably didn't make a lot of sense. But that was God's command for them. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with your spouse. But I do know this. You have a God in heaven who loves you. You have a God in heaven who wants the best for you. And you have a God in heaven who has given you this to guide your life. The question is, will you live in obedience to your God in heaven? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this study. Wow, it's been so rewarding to me to get to study so much more that I learned that I can't give, that I'd like to give, but I know we're ready to go. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace, even in the midst of repetitive sin in the lives of these people. Yes, there were consequences, and yes, they endured a lot of pain because of their sin, but you were faithful, and you continue to be faithful. So, Father, would you work in the lives of your people? Father, if there's somebody here, and they've been through a, through a divorce not of their own desire, Father, would you comfort them? Would you encourage them? If there's somebody here and they realize that their divorce was their fault and it was not in keeping with your word, would you forgive them? Would you redeem them? And if possible, Father, if, if possible, would you redeem that marriage? Father, if there are students here that are dating outside Christianity, with the thought that I'll lead them to Christ. I hope they do lead them to Christ. But Father, let them know that they're living in sin, that you have called us to not be unequally yoked together. Doesn't mean we're not friends with the lost we are. We don't date them because we'll eventually marry somebody that we date. So Father, bring conviction and repentance and restoration. Father, do whatever you desire to do and help us to be obedient just as the people responded to Ezra. I pray that that would be our response. 
God, whatever you desire, we will do it. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm asking you to